just doing his numbers thing and they're just like confused they're trying to like investigate treason and he's just like talking about probably different dimensions and stuff <laughs> yeah. and like, uh, I don't know what to do with it Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good morning, and I don't get to say that very often because we never record in the morning. We don't, do we? We, we definitely record more at night. That's more our speed. Though I feel like today would probably have been better to record at night because we're going to be talking about some, some interesting, dark stuff that must remain in the shadow as you... Yes. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway, as always. So, George, who do we have this week? Well, today we are delving into the mysteries of numbers and the nature of reality with the honestly kind of depressing story of John D. Is that a fake name like John Doe? I'm pretty sure that's fake. Sorry to tell you, it is in fact worse than fake. It's Welsh. Oh, heavens preserve us. Oh, oh sorry. You messed I, I, up messed my... up, <laughs> I messed up the line. <laughs> Uh, oh no. Angels and ministers of grace defend us. It's kind of funny that you mentioned angels because they sort of play a pretty big role in today's story or play absolutely no role whatsoever, depending on who in the story you ask. How ominous. But you know what's not ominous? Announcements. <laughs> this is off to an amazing start. We're doing good, buddy. Uh, I mentioned it to the patrons, but not to the general audience. I am going to be on Tinfoil Hat with Sam Tripoli in June. Uh, that's going to be a huge bump for us, and it's going to be super cool. And probably if you're arriving here from the Tinfoil Hat podcast sometime in the future, welcome! <laughs> we hope you don't find our terrible intro to be too offensive. I mean, we're not really putting our best foot forward yet, are we, George? No, not in the slightest. No. But that's fine. It's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. So if you're from the future and you just listen to Tinfoil Hat, welcome. And uh, what else? Let's see what else. We don't really have anything else, do we? Just that. That's the big one. Slow week, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, depends on who you ask. But uh, <laughs> I think we should probably just get right to it then and stop wasting time and get down to the history lab. A world of magic and wonder exists right beside our own, hiding in plain sight. This is the world of mathematics, or as some would call it, sorcery. And today you will meet John Dee, the too smart to function actual wizard spy who talked to angels through mirrors. Join him on his adventures across Europe and the astral plane as we delve into the world of magic and a giant metal beetle animated by some dark sorcery. So, George, if you were to get stuck in a video game and it had to be Fortnite or Roblox, which would you choose and how would you escape? Well, I'm going to keep it real with you, Chief. I've never played either. I don't even know what Roblox is. I've seen memes about it, but I literally do not know what genre of game it is. 
I don't think it knows either. Okay, well, perfect. Well, I love a, I love a, a challenge. So I guess I'll go with Roblox, and I can then not be expected to give a coherent answer because I literally don't know what this game is. Well, later Google some <laughs> Roblox comp compilations, and you'll see that you made the wrong choice. <laughs> Worse than Fortnite? Uh, yeah, it's like Fortnite with more children. <laughs> Fortnite is already Fortnite with more children. I, you're right about that. You're right about that. Did you say how you were going to escape? Well, I don't know how the game works, so I guess I would... Die? <laughs> <laughs> like, isn't that sort of the one constant... I don't Death know. is always I, an option. I think when you die in Roblox, you just respawn, so you might be there forever. Like a Gnostic trapped in an infinite regressive death cycle. <laughs> of reincarnation and yep. failing to failing to finally purgate the flesh and become pure spirit and instead stuck in a... I don't even know what you are in Roblox. Like, you're like I'm a Lego a man. I'm a, okay, cool. Yeah, you're stuck in a Lego man forever. This is exactly what the Manichaeans were afraid of. <laughs> Your line. You're supposed to ask me the question. So sorry, I was still thinking of the you know spiritual ramifications of being stuck in an infinite regression of reincarnation as a Lego man. Sorry, <laughs> pondering the big questions here. I thought that's what we did on this show. That's anyway, true. so Aaron, if you were to get stuck in a video game and it had to be Fortnite or roblox roblox how does one roblox roblox <laughs> which would you choose and how would you escape uh i would also choose roblox because i would never want to be stuck in fortnite uh and because i also know nothing about roblox i'd probably find a way to hack the game from the inside to break it forever so i could free my consciousness from the digital mortal coil ah yes loud typing sounds followed by i'm in Yes, exactly. And I would be wearing a beanie while doing it, too. You have to have, like, a coat with the collar turned up. Yes, and, like, some kind of chain accessory. Many tattoos, and you probably need to be Asian in this day and age as well. <laughs> Thank you, Hollywood. Well, here we are, and it's been such a long time. Computer, please bring up John D. Okay. Look at that guy. <laughs> Oh, I'm looking. I'm uh, looking. Does, well, I suppose I should describe what we're looking at here. I, I think that's a very, very good idea. I I looked at a lot of depictions of John D, and I chose the one that just, I don't know, was funniest to me. I think it's because of his expression. So why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners what I'm subjecting you to? Well, okay, so we've got a, a guy with... um. Uh, dressed very uh, well, I suppose. He has like this cloak thing on. Looks like fur of some kind. It's He's pretty pimpin'. Yeah, I would say I would say pimpin' would be the adequate an adequate term to describe this. Um, He's holding in his hand some sort of a scroll, which we can only presume is some kind of a dread incantation to summon something from the Roblox dimension. Uh, he's got a pointy beard. Looks a little bit like, uh, Christopher Lee, I guess. Uh, funky hat. Uh, it's like, uh, well, he looks like a hacker. He's got, like, a sock hat on or whatever. A beanie. <laughs> this is a proto-Tim Pool. Um, 
but the expression on his face is difficult to describe. He no, looks... Don't forget the collar. You can't oh, forget the course. collar. Oh, of course. Yeah, he has one of those frilly collars from back in the day, which presumably, if you were eating a Hot Pocket, would catch your crumbs. Uh, he looks vaguely concerned and annoyed that you're looking in on him in his little magic studio here. Uh, yeah, he just kind of has one hand out to the side, like, I don't know why you'd have your hand like that. It's either resting on that table or whatever, but I can't tell from the perspective. And speaking of the table, there's some uh, occult symbolism in this tablecloth, it would appear. And his studio has a strange perspective issues. You've got chairs flying every which way and shelves facing the wrong way. Presumably this is a photographic, like a photo, you know, photorealistic representation. Photorealistic, I would imagine, so yeah. Yeah, so presumably... They, they, they were big into that in the 1580s. Yes, um, they were. Um, I mean, doesn't your tablecloth have occult imagery? Uh, I don't use tablecloths. I'm, I'm uh, savage. Uh, See, I, w I was hoping you were going to, like, turn it around and be like, well, does yours? And I was going to say, you think I use tablecloths? But you completely, <laughs> you preempted that joke. We're we're on the same frequency, obviously. But yes, it looks like, uh, it looks like Mr. D is trapped in a prison of the mind, you might say. Very strange. Ooh. That's some, like, Hermes Mora type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Is that a Morrowind it reference you just threw at me? It might have been. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're talking about All magic. Right. We could throw All a little right. Morrowind in there. Yep, take it away. Shall we? So we get, get this ball rolling. So, John D's birth was unremarkable and attended by no particular notice. After all, this is not a great and famous, you know, family. He's simply the son of a man named Rowland D, who is a dealer in linens and textiles, which is called a mercer, which I actually had to look up because I like seen that word. I didn't know what a mercer was. It apparently means you deal linens and textiles. So, Interesting. Good fact for cocktail parties. Um, <laughs> however, he wasn't just sort of a, you know, he wasn't a low-level dealer in linens and textiles. He was a relatively powerful member of the Mercer's Guild and was thus a man of some wealth and influence and even had some little exposure in the court of uh, Henry VIII. Please hold your jeers and put, the, <laughs> put, the, put that bottle down. Um <laughs> Nevertheless, it wasn't like, you know, we're talking about the birth of a prince or the scion of some noble family or anything like that. This is just the birth of the son of a, like, relatively successful linen man who's met <laughs> some important people, but is himself not very important. So, his birth occurred with very few people outside of his parents, the aforementioned Rowland, and his wife, whose name was either Jane or Johanna Wilde, making note of it. In fact, technically, they didn't really make note of it either because there is no record of his birth. Um, he is not on any sort of church register. There's no baptismal certificate sort of thing. There's no private correspondence that says, hey, we had a kid on this date. Um, there's no diary entries. There's actually only one thing which tells us when he was born, and that is something that's far more interesting. It is a series of numbers and a cosmic coordinate. Huh. 1527 July 13 H apostrophe L 0 apostrophe 4.2.pm AT 5132 
so what is that? What what is that you just read? That sounds like magic. So that that uh that set of data is found on a mysterious document which is now among the papers of Mr. D at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. It is a sheet of parchment upon which is drawn a square containing a series of numbers and astrological symbols. It Ooh. is in fact a horoscope drawn up in the ancient fashion showing what the state of the heavens at the precise time and place of D's birth was. And so it's, it's labeled with that information from which we can get a, bio, a biographical sketch. What that means is that he was born at 4.02 p.m. on the 13th of July, 1527, at a place which was 51 degrees 32 seconds north of the equator, which, if you, if you plug that in, would roughly give you London. That is... Yeah. Uh, which makes sense. But, so we know exactly when he was born, because he was apparently uh, into doing his own horoscopes. That, okay, I'm, I'm already on board. This is weird. <laughs> so, if you know anything about coordinates, you probably know that you generally get two, right? A latitude and a longitude. Mm-hmm. But we've only, got, we've only got the latitude there, because in ye olden days of the 16th century, there was no standard way to measure longitude, because people hadn't agreed on a particular place where the line was going to be. Like, everyone could agree at the equator for latitude, but horizontally, there's no, there's no like one place where it makes sense. This is where, this is where the intersection should be. And so, as a result, people just didn't really use longitude because um, it was very, very hard to calculate, and there wasn't a standard sort of place you started counting from. So no one really used it um, because if you wrote something down with a uh, with a longitude. It would only mean anything if whoever was reading it had used the same meridian as you. So, like, you could have, you know, you could give the coordinates of somewhere and you could be using Chicago as your meridian. And then everyone who uses Chicago as the meridian will know what the coordinates mean. But if they don't use Chicago, it's meaningless. So people just didn't really use longitude. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> and I'm that's a not... I'm a touch yeah. lost, so we know exactly where he was born but we had on a, ver on a vertical axis okay. we did not a horizontal axis but the only important place on that vertical axis is london which is where we know his parents lived so we're assuming that they didn't just proceed directly towards the pole for a hundred miles before having their son okay okay I, I get it i get it okay so what i'm getting from this so far is that John D. presumably died in Roblox and respawned here in this dimension, and he's trying to figure out just how he got here. Almost certainly. Definitely. Almost certainly. Historical fact. So, <laughs> so yeah, so longitude just isn't really a thing right now, because there isn't a standard measurement for it. Um, but in fact, most people didn't care about latitude either. What? You didn't put it on maps. Like, nobody used coordinates to do anything. Very few people had any idea of what latitude or longitude even meant or how you used it. It just wasn't a thing people cared about, except for one very peculiar sort of person engaged in one very peculiar sort of study. And would you care to guess what that is, Aaron? Uh, map making. No, the maps weren't putting that stuff on yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what is it? <laughs> Astrology. Oh, we. Yes. Like, that's right. Our good friends, the astrologers, were pretty much the only people who ever gave information in the format of uh, longitude, latitude, coordinates. Why? Because that's the information you need for assembling horoscopes and calculating what the stars would have looked like when a particular event, such as the birth of John D, occurred. And so that is what John D's note was. It was a horoscope showing the exact time and sort of exact place of his birth, and then, by means of all the astrological symbols, extrapolating exactly what the stars and planets were doing at the moment of his birth. And why would this information be of value to a guy like John D? Because he was a scientist. Hmm. And um, you'll notice I've used the term astrology here as opposed to astronomy. And it's something that's oftentimes is a little bit of a trip up because we think of those as two different things, right? Yes. Like, what do you think of when you hear astronomy? Uh, I think of a scientist with a telescope looking at the stars. What do you think of when you hear astrology? I think of a wizard holding a pyramid and looking at the stars. <laughs> and which one's cooler? No, don't answer that. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> that is sort of our the, the modern division. One is a science. The other is sort of magic or okay. pseudoscience. That distinction doesn't really exist until late 17th and into the 18th century. For most of the, uh, for the Middle Ages and the pre-modern world, they're really the same thing. Like, there's kind of a conceptual difference in that astronomy is how you chart out the physical movements of heavenly bodies, and then astrology is how you interpret what that's going to mean. But it wasn't thought of as two separate things. Like, you, you did the astronomy part so that you could then do the astrology part. So it's a little bit like neurology versus psychiatry. Like one sitting yeah, in a chair in a trying sense, to figure yeah, out what actually, it means, you know? Yeah, that's actually, that's a, I like that analogy. And so it's the same people doing it, and both, both of them. You know, first you measure the stars, and then you use that information to drop the horoscope and find out, you know, what, what's going to happen. Gotcha. So that's a, astrology is not like a negative term at this point. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I think most so people anyway, when they hear astrology, they think of like newspaper horoscopes. Um, that's not, that's not what this was. <laughs> no. Yeah. This is generally being done by the same people. In fact, many recognizable names who we would consider some of, you know, the greatest scientists of the early modern period were very into astrology. Um, yeah, not surprising. So, John's birth, which we know exactly when it was, because he left his horoscope lying around, coincided with what proved to be some very, very important events in English and really all of European history, which were taking place not too far away from where he was born over at Henry VIII's palace at Greenwich, and which was certainly a cause of great concern to people who were attached to the royal household, such as his father, Rowland, since he was, you know, a uh, an important linen dealer who had been to the palace. Like he was, I'm sure, very, very concerned about everything that's going on. And what was going on? Well, just three weeks before John was born, the king, good old Henry VIII. Oh boy. Gotta, you gotta love him. Yes. Um, anxious for a male heir and also anxious to consummate his lust for Anne Boleyn 
And with my man, the Pope, refusing to give in to Henry's tantrum and grant an annulment of his marriage, Henry had accosted his wife, Catherine, and announced that he was declaring the marriage to be annulled, even if the Pope wouldn't. And, well, we all know where this ended up. Yes. Yes. So that's literally happening same month that John D is born, which is... That's pretty... Uh... Pretty tumultuous time in English history, I would that say. It is a pretty tumultuous time. And would John D. take credit for his appearance from the Roblox <laughs> dimension for this? Well, see, that's the problem, is that we... John D. didn't write down what his interpretation of his horoscope was. All hmm. we have in the notebook is he wrote down... The, he finished the horoscope chart with all the stars. He didn't tell us what his interpretation was. So. Well, presumably any wizard worth his salt would just read it and be like, Oh, yes, of course. I see. <laughs> that's true. Like, if, if I can't read that, I probably don't deserve to know. Exactly. And that's what a wizard would say. Very good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So that's what's going on when he's born. Um, or at least when he thinks he was born because... That does seem oddly precise, like 4.02 p.m. How do you get that kind of information in, you know, the 16th century? Like, it's not like you can go look back in your camera roll and see when you're taking a picture of the newborn kid. Like, Pro Probably some external calculation would be my guess. But anyway, who uh, knows? Who knows? But we can probably trust him on it, though, since the rest of the information in his, uh, his astrology chart is actually highly accurate. Um, well, except for the positions of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, since those planets hadn't been discovered, so they're not there. But all the heavenly bodies that he knows about are really close to a sort of scientifically accurate calculation, um, to within a few minutes of arc, um, a minute being one-sixtieth of a degree. So we're talking a, a very, very close calculation to the sort of scientific, what we would consider a modern scientific calculation. With the exception, which is kind of weird, and I don't know why this is, of Mercury, which is two degrees off from where it should have been. Hmm. Um, so I don't know what his deal was with Mercury, but apparently Mercury was a harder read. Uh, and finally, the Ascendant, which is what marks the position of the sign of the Zodiac rising on the eastern horizon, is out by just under one degree. So A minus. Like, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. So we can probably assume that at least like the day he was born is right. If he can do all this other stuff, he can probably figure out the day he was born. Yes, probably. Hmm. So, as I said, sadly, D himself left no record of what his own interpretation of this chart was, though presumably he thought he knew what it meant. Um, if he, you know, was writing it all down, it had to be a reason for it, so he had to be trying to figure something out, but we shall never know what it is. But enough of that little weird rabbit hole. Let's dive into a little bit more uh, traditional biography, so to speak. Okay. Though, as we've seen again and again being the case, the information available on his early life leaves a lot to be desired. Since, as we've talked about, with if someone's not famous because of who they are, like a prince or something, but are instead famous because of things that happen later in their life, no one is going to be writing down the stuff that happens earlier because they're not famous yet. So who cares? Right. Right. Like, you know, who's going to have written down something that some random upper middle class Welsh kid born in London was doing um, when you could be writing about the fact that the king is becoming a bloated, lustful psychopath? Right. You exactly. know, if there's 
if there's a fire in Chicago and a fire in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, which one's going to sell the papers? Ah, the Chicago fire, I would say. Yes, I see exactly. your point here. Anyway, rant over. It's just, yeah, no, nobody, no, nobody cares about the common people. <laughs> so back to John D's early life. So as I mentioned, uh, John was Welsh. His name, D, is apparently from the Welsh word do, which means black. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is important. Uh, his grandfather was Bado Dudu. I don't know how to pronounce two D's at the beginning of a word. Yeah. Who was from... You know, why don't you pronounce it? Nancy Gross? Pilith? Uh, your Ra- guess is as good as mine. Radnershire? <laughs> I do like Radnershire. That's kind of cool sounding. Yeah, Radnershire. I dig it. So, despite being born in London and being educated and spending pretty nearly his entire life outside of Wales, um, he did go back and visit at one point, but other than that, he has no no real experience there. Nevertheless, John does seem to have maintained a certain connection to his Welsh background. Uh, he wrote letters to Welsh relatives, and in fact, later in his life, he constructed a, uh, a lineage pedigree which would trace his own ancestry all the way back to Rodri the Great, who was the King of Wales in 844. Wow. So we're talking going back 700 years. Um, this lineage is almost certainly not accurate, but it does show that he had an idea of, you know, being Welsh rather than being English, even though he was born and raised in London. Important distinction, important distinction, especially yes, back And it then. will become important later on. Oh, good. <laughs> oh. So now the Wikipedia article says that his Welsh family came to London at the time of Henry VII's coronation. Henry VII is the one who came out on top in the War of the Roses. That's a thing we should cover, by the way, War of the Roses. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, put that on the list. Okay. Um, So this makes a certain amount of sense, uh, since Henry VII, Henry Tudor, had partial Welsh... I know, it's harsh. Partial Welsh ancestry. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh... I could see various, you know, well-to-do people or Welsh-to-do people. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to charge you for that one. (laughs) Various well-to-do Welsh people making making their way to the seat of power, hoping that, you know, if there's a new king who's part Welsh, maybe we can kind of insinuate ourselves into good positions in the royal court. I can see that happening, right? Oh, and for like, sure. That makes a certain amount of sense. Thankfully, the Wikipedia page had a citation for this info. It was the 1959 edition of the Dictionary of Welsh Biography. Well, if you can believe it, guess who got a hold of the Dictionary of Welsh Biography? That's right. This guy. It wasn't in there. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> Just so. straight up, there was no reference at all about when his ancestors came to London. Okay, so it was made up and put on Wikipedia. And cited to the 1959 edition of the Dictionary of Welsh Biography. Okay, so... So, like, it's not impossible, because as I said, it makes a certain amount of sense. And maybe somebody just messed up the citation numbers and, like, put the wrong citation. But the citation that is given has absolutely nothing about that. So, just once more again... proof that we shouldn't be using Wikipedia. <laughs> a cautionary tale. Yes. But I, th- I thought that was funny. I was like... Dictionary of Welsh Biography? That seems really official. I probably don't need to check that source. 
But then I was like, eh, let's check that source. And then I did, and the engine just straight up wasn't there. Like, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> so, according to a, uh, a 1909 published uh, book I read, and here, can you... Can you read this quote as if... Read it in your best sort of pretentious British schoolmaster voice. Ah. No problem. <laughs> the boy was... Uh, the boy was early bred in grammar and inured to Latin from his tender years. X, that was... You know, that was exactly what I was hoping for. That was Brilliant. the exact voice I wanted. <laughs> So yes, he apparently had a very early education uh, that we don't necessarily know a whole lot about. Um, we do know that from 1535 to 1542, so from ages 7 to 15, he attended the Chelmsford Chantry School. And this uh. is something I just love about old-timey British Isles stuff. Everything sounds like it could be a location in a FromSoft game. Like, <laughs> I can just see the words coming up on the screen. Chelmsford Chantry School, and I'm looking for a bonfire. <laughs> I'm going to cut in the uh, the sound effects for that. <laughs> but does we need... that not sound like a location in Bloodboard or something? <laughs> it does, it does. That's, uh, Dark Souls location. Yeah, no, I'm totally cutting that in. That's hilarious. <laughs> The Chelmsford Chantry School. <laughs> and plus, every politician sounds like they could be a Dark Souls boss. Like my personal favorite, the Lord Archer of Weston Super Mare. 100% a Dark Souls boss. Oh, Probably yeah. Probably has a second phase that's bullshit, too. Let me solo that one. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me solo him. <laughs> So this uh, this education that Dee received at the Chelmsford Chantry School must have been satisfactory um, since he entered St. John's College, Cambridge at age 15. He All Dee himself really tells us about his education before that was that he was... Uh, what voice are we going to use for Dee? Dee? Oh, he's got to be a wizard. And is that merely or meatly? Meet Metley. Meet Meatly, which means I've... appropriately. <laughs> Meatly. Uh, have you uh, ever heard like to meet out? Yes. Means you give the appropriate amount. Okay, I've never seen Meatly before, Meat. ever. So, yes, yeah, so a wizard voice as a, as a Meatly well furnished with understanding of the Latin tongue. Yes. Excellent. Exquisite, even. Yes. Voice services are available for that. <laughs> So yes, so John John D was meatly well furnished with understanding of the Latin tongue and enters St. John's College, Cambridge. Um, and we do actually have some of his own writings about this time. So according to D, while in college, he slept only four hours a night, allowed two hours for meals, recreation, and everything else, and devoted the remaining 18 hours of each day to study. Wow. That's impressive, I have to say. It really is, isn't it? Like, mm -hmm. I think that you and I can probably both agree that that's basically what our college experience was also like. That's how yeah. I remember it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 18 hours of solid study, uh, four, <laughs> four hours, hours of sleep. Of sleep. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds, sounds pretty, much, pretty much what we did. It was yeah. great. Times, some things never yeah. change. 
So with uh, with such a relaxing regimen, it's no wonder that it took D until 1546 to finish his studies and graduate. I mean, Ugh, what with a him slacking off like that, that <laughs> four hours of sleep, like terrible, Ugh. terrible. So while he was a student, however, his passion was really mathematics. Um, and as a subject, mathematics was regarded at this time, at least by some people, with a certain amount of suspicion. Interesting. As being sort of magic in disguise. And mm. not good magic, like black magic in disguise. Um, oh, geez. The 17th century uh, antiquarian John Albury uh, reported that during the Tudor era, the authorities had burned mathematical books for conjuring books. So they had burned mathematical stuff along with actual, like, magic books. And because oh, they considered them the same thing. Presumably because they both used weird languages and strange figures, and Probably. most people couldn't tell them apart. Probably. Yeah. Plus, the sort of the big name that's associated with math is uh, Pythagoras. He's sort of the one of the founding figures of mathematics. When people think of math, they think of Pythagoras in ancient Greece. And he's often at this time depicted as a wizard okay. who invents math. Um, <laughs> and, well, hold uh, on. Have you ever seen the Disney short Mathematic with Donald Duck? No. Dude, it's, in, it's impressive. It's just an animation where uh, Donald Duck pretends to be a wizard and he just shows you how geometry works. As well as well, like they, the, the golden ratio. Incredibly on point then for this. It's an yeah, it's an extremely informative video. You can find it on YouTube. Um, Interesting. Just saying. Then, just uh, saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess maybe they were right. But uh, hmm. another fun fact: uh, sometimes the word instead of the word conjuring, which is sort of the normal word you use to describe doing these sort of questionable magic rites, they would actually refer to it as calculating. Interesting, because math and magic are the same thing. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're right, though. I mean, I, I can't tell. You don't appear to be joking, but math and magic are, if not the same thing, they're very closely related. And they're actually, I mean, truthfully, not all that different in many regards. Just the the pictures that magic people use are a little bit uh, spookier, I guess. Can you, can you, like, take 30 seconds and riff on that? I kind of want to see the perspective you're coming from. Oh, yeah, um... So sacred symbology, like, uh, let me see if I can come up with it. Okay, so like the, the stars in the American flag, they're five-pointed stars, which is representative of a man because a person has five points of contact, two feet, two arms, and the head. Um, and if you turn that upside down, you get a satanic symbol because it's the inversion of man, if that makes any sense. So when you see Leonardo da Vinci's sketch of that guy with his arms outstretched, that's basically Patrick Starr. <laughs> yes. And uh, depending on which magician you ask, you can add more points to that, um, depending on different energy centers surrounding the body. Uh, of course, that all depends on whether or not you believe in such things, but it doesn't matter what you believe, that's what they believed. So if you can grasp that conceptually, you're on your way to understanding what magic actually is. It is not Harry Potter shooting a laser out of a wand. <laughs> okay. Uh, Cool. Yeah. Well, thank and you, you can just, one one last thing is you can use these mathematical symbols to manipulate people, and that's why they there was they were viewed with some suspicion and frequently got confused. Uh, so yeah, magic is a real thing, but it's generally not at all how people picture it. 
I can't wait to learn more. I can't wait to tell you more, so carry on. (laughs) So Dee was especially interested in the use of math on the sort of cosmic scale. He really saw numbers as these powerful sort of magical seals that like held reality together. That reality was really just like the interaction between different numbers that had their own inherent significance. Um, So that numbers didn't have significance because we gave them significance. It's like, you know, like, you know, we talk, what's, what do we talk about as like the lucky number usually in English? Uh, What's the lucky number? 13? I thought 13 was the unlucky number. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. What's the lucky? Seven. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so like, I think most people, if you like press them on it, they'd ultimately come down on a sort of materialist, well, everybody's just sort of agreed that seven, you know, throughout history, seven's been seen as lucky, and so people have attributed this meaning to it, so it's got these sort of good vibes attached to it, and so it's lucky. I think that's where most people would go if you sort of press them on seven being a lucky number. But for D, and for a lot of other people who are doing this kind of math, they think that numbers have these inherent significance that has nothing to do with people. We're just kind of witnesses of it. Um, it's these numbers that have significance that are holding reality together. And he's not the first or the last to go down this road. In fact, in the 18th century, Isaac Newton, who I think we've all heard of, considered one of the most important scientists of all time, was still very much following this line of thought when he argued that there were seven colors in the rainbow because there were seven planets and seven notes in a musical octave. Mm. Yep. He's, yeah, it's not just a coincidence that the number seven has this significance and that's why it's reflected in these different things. It's not that it's just random chance and, oh, it's cool, there's seven of all those things, that's neat. It's that the reason there's seven of those things is because seven itself has some sort of power. Yes, and, uh, I mean, for an example of this was, okay, so take the number of man, which is five. I think it's five. You know what? I don't know if it's the number of man, but if you take five and seven and add them together, what do you get? Twelve. You get twelve, right? And twelve is pretty significant. Jesus had twelve disciples or twelve months in a year. Um, there's a system of mathematics that is base twelve as well that was popular, or at least was fighting with base ten. Uh, and all of this mathematics and weird stuff. I didn't know that. What's the Who used the base twelve system? Uh, let me see. Base twelve. I was looking into this not long ago. Uh, yeah, duodecimal. I think that's right. Um, yeah, if you if you go reading into this, you find all of these savants and geniuses who came up with different um, bases for numbers. There was one guy I actually bookmarked not long ago, uh, William James Sidis. He's a child proge- prodigy, um, and uh, he's researched thermodynamics, and he was said to have like a god-sized IQ. Um, if you get, go looking into that, you can discover some really interesting stuff. But these people who focus on numbers, they end up, um, when they write about how they think, it's almost impossible for us to understand because the very basis for how they think is basically, um, depend. it depends on the numbers you're using. So yeah, William James Sidis. I'm going to, Sidis? Sidis. I don't really know how to pronounce it. Um, Harvard graduate. Um, absolutely, uh, absolute <laughs> genius. Interesting. I know. Numbers are weird. Numbers are weird. So to us, uh, 
this may, this whole numbers thing, it may sound like the sort of uh, lunatic ravings that you'd read at 3 a.m. on an Angel Fire website that was last updated in 1999. <laughs> but, you know, this is coming from a dude, Isaac Newton, who's widely acknowledged as one of the greatest scientists to ever live. And he's into this sort of stuff. And uh, it's pretty much most scientists were very into this kind of stuff because they didn't see they didn't have the same boundaries we have to where science ended and what we now think of as pseudoscience or, you know, superstition or magic began. Um, in a similar way, Johannes Kepler, the one who, you know, charted out planetary motion, he believed that planets had to be spheres because the importance of the number three as a sort of number of perfection, and since there are sort of three qualities of the sphere, the center, the radius, and the surface. So the shape that has those things in a some sort of perfect numerical um, proportion, which is the sphere for him, that's of course the shape the planets are going to be because they're going to be reflecting this cosmic significance of the number three. Right. I was actually going to mention trinities because trinities are pretty well important. I mean, what are the uh, three forms of a, of a material? liquid, solid, and gas. There's three. It's triune, right? How many legs do you have to have on a stool to get it to stand up? At the very minimum. Three. And so people... Three points defines a plane. Exactly. So you've got these three points, and of course, um, if you if you take it to its logical end, that breaks down to the very, very, very basics of this, of this world or this reality or whatever you want to conceptualize it as. So... When you pick apart numbers, you can get these like crazy sounding writings. And and if you look into this base 12 thing, it's going to sound crazy and it might break your brain. So be very careful. <laughs> um, yes, I intentionally did not. Um, this is really the only time we're going to directly be talking about the number stuff. Because <laughs> just keep in mind, this is the kind of thing D's doing through this whole episode. I didn't want to just get too uh, too bogged down in the details of it. But just keep in mind that this is the type of thing he's thinking about and researching and writing about. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> little Johnny graduated college filled with strange ideas about math and knowledge and numbers and reality, which is actually kind of like Aaron when he yeah. graduated college. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I've got a ta I got a tab open right now on a, a, a science fiction novel called 333 written in 1974. Uh, I haven't read a thing about it, but to see 333 on a science fiction novel, again, confirms to me that magic and science are largely inseparable. And one of these days, we'll cover, um, what's that dude's name? The rocket scientist I was telling you about, Mr. Iron Man himself. Oh, yeah. I don't remember his name. That guy was, uh, uh, I've talked about him before. Uh, I'll remember his name here in about five minutes and just shout it and scare you. <laughs> I look forward to it. So the, uh, the timing of uh, little Johnny's graduation was quite fortuitous. For that very same year, good old Henry VIII, hold your applause, <laughs> founded Trinity College. Hmm. Trinity. Mm, numbers. <laughs> anyway, moving on. And John D. was chosen as one of the first group of fellows of Trinity College, serving as the under-reader of Greek which I suppose is better than over-reading the Greek, at least if my time in graduate school is any indication. Presumably. Also, Jack Parsons. Oh, is that the guy? That's the guy, yeah. 
See, there's... you didn't scare me. You just confused me. I was trying to connect <laughs> that to the Greek thing, and it's like, I, am I supposed to know who that is? Yeah, no, Jack Parsons was a rocket engineer who was involved with magic, and uh, many of his rocketry experiments closely resembled uh, ancient magical rituals, but we'll get into that another time. Perhaps yes. on uh, perhaps on Tinfoil Hat, where it belongs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, in uh, 1547... When John D. was 19, the under-reader of Greek put on a production of an ancient Athenian play called Peace by Aristophanes. This play was first produced in 421 B.C. So this is it makes sense that the under-reader of Greek would be putting on this Greek play, right? Right, um, right. And this is a comedy, and a very, very irreverent comedy at that. Um, I didn't put most of the hilarious irreverent stuff in here because it's not actually that relevant to the plot but like if you think of ancient texts as being these serious somber things read a greek comedy and like even a modern audience would be scandalized by some of the jokes in greek comedy um, yes <laughs> so the in this play the main character is attempting to reach zeus's palace to consult him about how to bring peace to the city uh ladders fail to do the job as they keep toppling over when he tries to lean them against the sky so he takes his inspiration from Pegasus, the great winged horse of Greek mythology. He thinks, okay, maybe if I can get Pegasus to come carry me up, I'll be able to go talk to the gods. Sadly, Pegasus is busy. So he captures the next best thing, which is a dung beetle. <laughs> and he feeds it until it is of such enormous size that it can carry him up to the gods, which it eventually does after a lot of flailing and thrashing about. Um... The main character rises up to heaven on the dung beetle to consult Zeus. There's also a great point where he yells at the audience to make sure no one farts because it'll distract the dung beetle. Oh my god! It's yeah, it's it's pretty Friggin wild. Greeks, man. So it seems reasonable to me that if you're producing this, you could just have like a big sack or something painted to look like a dung beetle, and you can flail it around with a rope and call it a day. You know, good enough for government work. Right. But apparently that wasn't good enough for John D. Um, oh. On the day of the performance, the benches of Trinity's main hall were packed with students and academics, visitors, um, possibly even, you know, some could be some some royal courtiers could have been there to enjoy a little, a little diversion. It's a big crowd. And the, the pitch lamps were ignited. The stage was set. The actor makes his entrance and gets on top of the insect. Come now, my Pegasus, he cries. Come, pluck up a spirit. Rush upwards from the earth. Stretch out your speedy wings and make straight for the palace of Zeus. And to the audience's amazement, the creature leaps from the stage and up into the pa Zeus's palace, which is located at the uh, the up on the eaves at the very top of the ceiling of the hall. And Dee never records what sort of mechanism or machine he built to accomplish the apparently dramatically lifelike movement of the giant dung beetle um apparently it didn't look like they're just like hauling this thing up on a rope apparently it's like moving around in a way that no one can figure out how it's doing it's like jumping around on stage and nobody knows what's what the actual mechanism is um whoa and he never he never explains what sort of machine he built but it does sound a lot like something he does talk about called thaumaturgy, which literally means wonder making, which he called, wizard voice please, an art mathematical which giveth certain order to make strange works 
of the sense to be perceived and of men greatly to be wondered at. And he goes on to list a number of such wonders that he had either seen or heard about, including a fly made out of iron which could buzz around and then land again. Um, he seems to be talking mostly about sort of primitive automatons or robotic mechanisms. And that, like, I could imagine, like, I wonder if the fly has some sort of, like, wind-up thing in it. But Probably. anyway, um, he discusses methods for making these sorts of things, including pneumatics, mirrors, springs, pulleys. This all seems like it would fit pretty well with the dung beetle, but how he made it or what exactly was so goddamn impressive about it, we shall never know. But apparently it was, it was just mind-blowing, this dung beetle. <laughs> a mind-blowing robotic would that dung i could beetle. see something as impressive as this dung beetle oh man it's so funny that this comes up because just the other night i was watching uh clockwork uh automatons like this on youtube they've still got a collection of them at the british museum and those things are pretty creepy man they like play the piano and they blink and walk around it's really 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 spooky yeah, they, they are creepy as hell, to be perfectly mm -hmm. honest. But anyway, so he built some sort of dung beetle robot. And I spent, honestly, probably two hours trying to find some actual information about it. And there's just nothing. I'm there's sure Reddit no had something to say. <laughs> there is nothing about what it actually was or did. All that we know is the effect it had on people, which was dramatic. Um, the people who saw it or heard about it had no idea how it worked. And it was terrifying, and so there soon began to circulate speculation on how the effect had been achieved. And apparently it was so striking that some people believed that such an act of levitation could not have been done by stagecraft alone, mm. but that another, possibly diabolical, force must have been at work. Oh my. So yeah, so there's this rumor that he had, uh, even already at age 19, John Dee's already getting sort of this kind of mixed reputation as like an incredibly smart guy but maybe not quite on the level yeah or on the level if you know what i mean the level yeah. and square what what yes nope. what huh how dare you <laughs> no anyway. no no things i can't say <laughs> in, that <laughs> in any case uh that seems to have been d's first and last foray into theater he never, he never did any other theater stuff. Um, though, fun fact, it is believed, not certain, but it's believed that an, there are some uh, characters in some of Shakespeare's plays which were inspired by D. Like, what's the uh, the wizard's name? Prospero? Yeah. The wizard? Yeah, he's believed to be inspired by John D. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, this guy's weird. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So... Dee later recalls um, that it was during this period at Trinity College that his interest in astronomy first really flourished. Every clear night, he would stand beneath the canopy of the stars, set up his quadrant and all his little tools, and... Wizard voice. Oh. He would make... Observations vary many to the hour and minute of the heavenly influences and operations actual in this elemental portion of the world of which sort I made some thousands in the years then following. Wow. So weird, he did this, like, dude. all the time. Weird okay, dude. great. Like, yep, oh, it's a clear night. John's going to be out there making observations again. Pretty much. So 
this uh this passion for astronomy ultimately led him to seek uh seek a more conducive environment because there just weren't that many people in England who were interested in this. Like he was just kind of weird and nobody really cared. So in May of 1547, D makes his first journey overseas, spending several months visiting the Dutch universities to talk to other people who were also really into numbers and stars and stuff, including a number of people who were some of the most famous living scholars at the time, one of whom was Gerard Mercator, who was responsible for the Mercator map projection that is still the most common way that the Earth is depicted on a flat map. Interesting. He and Dee spent weeks together. They were very, very close, uh, closely uh, working together as Dee was learning about uh, maps and, you know, charting distances and stuff. Probably, presumably, of course, using the stars. Well, of course, stars are super important for navigation. Mm. Maps are sort of designed. Primary, primary purpose of a map is navigation, so it's very much connected. Right, right. In fact, uh, D obtained two of Mercator's own globes that he had made, and he gave them as a gift to Trinity College, hmm. his old alma mater. Sadly, as of 1909, when a search was made, no one knows what happened to them. I know what happened to them. They ended they up ended in Dark up on Souls. eBay. <laughs> <laughs> you just roll through them, and then they're gone. <laughs> That's probably true. So then the following year, um, 1548... D enrolled at the University of Louvain and continued a wide variety of studies uh, for the next two years and earned his doctoral title because up to this point, he has an MA title from uh, Trinity College, but he goes the extra bit here and gets his doctoral title. Well, good for him. And like, education wasn't nearly as sort of, uh, you know, systematized as it is now, so... I don't think he like get a I don't think he got a doctorate in a specific thing. I think it was just kind of like, well, you've read a bunch of weird stuff and written a bunch of weird stuff, so <laughs> I think it's safe to say you have a doctorate now. Yeah, you're a wizard. Good job. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that the real qualification? It should be. <laughs> so, during this time, D generally had very little to do with his uh his fellow countrymen while he was away. He did, however, become friends with Sir William Pickering, the English ambassador to Charles V's court at Brussels, who would end up to be a pretty valuable political contact for him. Um, Pickering sort of helped helped him keep connected to the uh, the political class in England, even though he was away and also had very little interest in politics. Pick if his friendship with Pickering kind of kept him on everybody's radar. Gotcha. So after he finished up his two years at Louvain. In 1550, he departed for Paris, arriving there in July, still only 23 years old at this point. So we're still talking about a pretty young guy. Yeah. But his youth notwithstanding, uh, he had quite a wealth of knowledge on mathematics, astronomy, cartography, um, and Lord knows whatever else he picked up at the Dutch universities. Oof, I shudder And apparently, <laughs> this reputation for learning preceded him as he, uh, he makes sure we know in his own in his own words wizard voice wizard voice within a few days after at the request of some english gentleman made unto me to do somewhat there for the honor of my country i did undertake to read freely and publicly euclid's elements geometrical a thing never done publicly in any university of christendom 
So there you have it, folks, the first public geometry lectures in the West. Please hold your applause till the end. Ugh. Um, we have only D's account of this, but according to him, the lectures were amazing, with latecomers being forced to like climb up on people's shoulders and try to lean in through the windows to get a, get a piece of this geometrical action. Amazing. Granted, we only have his word for this, but you know, what a <laughs> wizard lie. <laughs> Never. Exactly. Not directly. <laughs> so he uh, he left no record of uh, what it was he did or said that attracted such a uh, mash of numbers. But whatever it was, it was apparently quite the geometrical sensation and offers of employment and royal patronage flowed in from various quarters of Europe, all of which D declined, presumably because it's more fun riding around wowing the crowds with your math skills than like having an actual job uh definitely that's what a wizard's <laughs> supposed to do yep impressing the crowds with your quick maths and your fireworks <laughs> exactly nevertheless he did make use of this fame to meet as many notable mathematicians and astronomers as he could and also to get people to give him books and this ended up working quite well and he began assembling an extremely impressive library um he had a copy of Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, which was a very sort of authoritative text on astrology. It's from 2nd century AD, and it was sort of the basic comprehensive text on astrology from the ancient world. And he had a copy of this that was donated to him from the library of the King of France. So, like, people are taking notice of this wizard man. Uh, yeah, uh, I would. I'd be like, what are and you doing over there? <laughs> It's also important to note that all through this time, he's also publishing his own books on math and astronomy and weird stuff like that. Um, some of which he tactfully dedicated to the King of England, which resulted in him receiving a uh, a decent uh, royal stipend every year. Like, not not a huge amount of money, but a nice chunk of money as a, hmm. a little show of the King's gratitude that he got some weird-ass books dedicated to him. He gave him a shout out on the podcast. That's what I'm hearing. Exactly. Exactly. And sadly, most of D's books don't survive. Oh, um, we still, he wrote a ton. We still have a ton of books by him, but many of the books he wrote do not survive. Oh, and I think a number have never been translated into English that he wrote in Latin. Whoa. Whoa. There's secrets in there. Get to podcast work. Podcast project. Yes. We need to publish John D's work. <laughs> I will finish what you started. <laughs> So, in 1552, John Dee returns to England with quite a major collection of mathematical and astronomical instruments and books. So, you know, he's got all sorts of weird metal spinny things that he uses to take measurements of the stars. And, I mean, I'm sure it looks very much like magic to the, um, you know, these ignorant 16th century English folk. It looked very much like magic to me, in fact. Interesting, hmm. So he has all these instruments and books, and he briefly takes up uh, with this Italian scholar who's living in London named Girolamo Cardano, who, by the way, is the one who invented the idea of imaginary numbers in algebra. Hold we just, up. We're just... oh, hold up. His name's Cardano? Yeah. You know about Cardano? No. It's a cryptocurrency. Imaginary mm -hmm. numbers. Hmm. Hmm. Oh. Oh. I wonder if it's named after that guy. I bet it is, because he also was a cryptographer who wrote a lot about codes and encryption. There you go. There you go. Wizardry in the modern era. 
That's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I've no, I had no idea of that. Yeah, I only know yeah, about so it he... because the mechanic at the workshop <laughs> bought Cardano. <laughs> nice. and I'm like, what's Cardano? He's like, I don't know. I don't. It's cryptocurrency. I'm like, but what's the name come from? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> well, there you now we it. know. <laughs> so yeah, imaginary numbers and algebra. Um, so he and D spend some time trying to figure out if it was possible to make a perpetual motion machine. Sadly, they decided that perpetual motion was only possible for celestial bodies. You couldn't make a machine. Um, hmm. Then they apparently spent some time like trying to research the properties of some sort of magic gemstone. I was able to find nothing on this, about, just except just a reference to a magic gemstone. So I don't know what they were doing, what the gemstone was, what they were trying to make it do, but it didn't go anywhere. Okay. Presumably um, the sorcerer's stone or the... Alchemist stone. Most likely, yes. Mm, okay. So over the next uh, the next year, D would be in residence with several of the most powerful nobles in England because he's gotten a big reputation. So people, you know, people like to have a smart dude sort of as part of your household. Um, the nobles he's in residence with are all firmly entrenched on the Protestant side of the ongoing English religious crisis. So even though D has never come out as a Protestant, presumably his time among the Dutch and his friendship with various well-regarded Protestant intellectuals sort of helped open these doors. That he was a, a solid dude. Who wouldn't yeah, wizards, sort of, can, uh, wizards can sort of shapeshift, though. Like, they're they're really good at pretending. You wouldn't want him, stuff. like, you know, smuggling papistry into your household. Oh, heaven forbid. Heaven forbid, yeah. So by 1553, D was the tutor of the children of the Duke of Northumberland, who was the most powerful man in England. Since the king, Edward VI, was very young, he was pretty much completely controlled by Northumberland. Uh, thus, D was what looked to be a very, very, very uh, good position he was in. He's sort of at the heart of this new Protestant order. He's the tutor of the children of the most powerful man in the kingdom. Once the king is old enough, he's very likely to be sort of a favorite of the king. So, like, he he's he's looking good. He's yeah, looking good. Yeah. But Edward, the king, who was never very uh, vigorous, was dying. Oh. And the Duke of Northumberland, since he's the, the real power, he had the dying child king write a document disowning his sister, Mary, um, and making his heir the thoroughly Protestant Jane Grey, who was his cousin, even though the proper legal successor would have been the sister Mary. But the problem with Mary is that she had steadfastly refused the polyester rainbow tide of Protestantism and still held to the old papist ways, and that was just unacceptable. Yeah, the, would you care to explain the, uh, <laughs> there's no way to make it short, but Protestantism, like you said, was a rainbow tide. I'm assuming you mean by that there were so many different variations of it. Um, it no, was... I mean, honestly, I, I put this in purely as a polemic against you, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I just threw together a bunch of insulting words. Something that said insulting and polyester rainbow tide just sort of stuck in my head. I was like, yep. That's how I'm going to describe Protestantism. It's pretty good. <laughs> so anyway, Northumberland is, yeah, so trying to trying to cut out Mary and put the Protestant Jane Grey on the throne. 
However, Northumberland's scheme fell apart very quickly upon the king's death, and his attempt to declare Jane Grey as queen was basically ignored by everyone, and the troops he had sent to arrest Mary for treason ended up coming back to arrest him for treason. Fair enough. Um, so with Northumberland having received the customary reward for treason, which is what? Uh, treason was brought and quartered, right? Uh, he was beheaded. Okay. Yeah, he was he was he was beheaded. No, it was it was crazy. It was like I think it was between three and four weeks from when he was the most powerful man in the kingdom to when he was dead. Jeez. Wow. Talk about a it fall was, from grace. Indeed, indeed. And uh he also disavowed Protestantism before he died, which is <laughs> kind of funny. Fascinating. Yep. So John D's position was certainly looking less ideal at that point, uh, because that's the guy who's children he was the tutor for who's now been beheaded for treason not a great look john not mm -hmm. a great look and right after this d's father um who had grown extremely rich off of cushy government contracts was implicated in some way in northumberland's conspiracy precise records don't exist about what exactly he was sort of accused of but he was somehow implicated in this and was held for questioning for a while and was eventually released um, but whatever his involvement was, it spelled the end for his business empire as he had lost, you know, all those royal privileges and very lucrative contracts and rights that he had built his success on. Since you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna let somebody who was kind of implicated in a treasonous plot keep all these privileges and rights when you could give those as a favor to somebody who's on your side. Right. Makes sense. So his father, yeah, basically his, his business empire sort of collapses. So John can certainly no longer expect to be able to have his parents bail him out if he gets into trouble. He's on his own. Mm. A wizard and errant. Once, a wizard errant, yeah. And once again, he's, he's, he's got job offers. He's offered a position at Oxford, which he once again rejects because he would just rather do his own thing. Um, and he's also trying to find a way to insinuate himself back into elite society. Um, and he doesn't want to have to actually have a job he wants to devote himself full-time to his own weird stuff and trying to get back into the uh the upper echelons that's exactly what we're doing <laughs> basically um it doesn't go very well however because in 1555 he finds himself arrested and charged with treason for assembling horoscopes of queen mary and her sister elizabeth hmm. and this is pretty common uh in general it's absolutely prohibited to make horoscopes for the rulers because it would be seen as sort of espionage. Hmm. If you're trying to find something out about, you know, the king's future, that's basically spying. Interesting. And even worse, and this was brought up specifically in the case of John D, making horoscopes could be a convenient cover for actually trying to put some sort of curse on them. Interesting. Yeah, I believe that. And so it's just, it's, it was always prohibited to do horoscopes for the rulers. Well, you know D how, how a curse would work in this situation, right? So like, uh, he would make these horoscopes and say, this is what's going to happen. And then that would essentially be hanging over their head because if you said it persuasively enough or made a strong enough case using your charts and things, uh, it makes the person accident prone. They're more likely to see it as having happened, or if they see signs of it coming to be, it has more of a more of an opportunity to manifest itself in real life. So they're not exactly wrong. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So D was undoubtedly guilty. Um, as notes in his diary show that he was working out the position of the stars at the time of various events in royal lives. And uh, there's really only one reason you'd be doing that. And it's if you were putting together a horoscope chart. Right. So he's definitely did it. Like, definitely was guilty. Um, whether or not it was just a, an innocent, harmless thing, or if he was going to try to put some sort of curse on somebody, who knows? Nevertheless, after extensive questioning about what exactly his whole deal with stars and numbers and stuff was, uh, the authorities really didn't know what to do with him. Fair enough. It's just, he's just doing his numbers thing, and they're just, like, confused. They're trying to, like, investigate treason, and he's just, like, talking about probably different dimensions and stuff. <laughs> yeah. and it's like, uh, I don't know what to do with him. So they sent him to, for questioning to the Bishop of London hoping a more theological mind could figure out what the weird man's deal was. <laughs> Pardon me, sir. What is your actual deal? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, possibly uh, not surprisingly, the bishop doesn't seem to have figured it out either. Uh, we don't have any records of the interviews, but uh, he apparently had something going for him because the bishop, even though the interviews just kind of fizzle out without any kind of conclusion... The bishop ends up making him a member of his own household, which suited Dee's ambitions well enough because the Bishop of London is a influential, important person. So it's kind of his in back into high society. He's found another King Theoden to whisper his lies to. <laughs> Basically. Um, and he does some decent stuff. Like in 1556, he presents Queen Mary with a plan for preserving and copying old books, manuscripts, and records and founding a big national library to hold everything. Uh, sadly, this never got off the ground, um, but it was uh, it was an idea he had that was nice. But since it didn't go anywhere, he started expanding his personal library even more, acquiring books and manuscripts in England and on the continent, and pretty soon his library was actually recognized as the greatest library in England and wow. attracted many visiting scholars who wanted to uh, to use his books. A personal wizard library. Mm-hmm. So, um, he had another stroke of luck, however, which is that one of his cousins began to serve as a lady-in-waiting to Princess Elizabeth, which allowed Dee to begin ingratiating himself with the future monarch, which is very much what his goal is. And he does. He, uh, through his cousin, he sort of sends her advice about things and, you know, tries to tries to sort of set himself up as somebody she'll look to when she becomes queen. And that does end up happening because Mary dies in 1558 and Elizabeth succeeds her. Um, not forgetting her old acquaintance, Elizabeth summons John Dee to court, where if a friendly relationship blossoms between the wizard and the queen. However, Elizabeth was careful to sort of keep it in the background and not like have him standing next to the throne kind of thing. Yeah. Like she's happy to get coffee, but maybe not at the cafeteria in the palace, you know? Sure. <laughs> like, like you don't necessarily want to be seen too often in close on close terms with a suspected sorcerer. <laughs> like, it just, it's kind of weird. I mean, so, we know how it turned out for the Tsar and Tsarina in Russia with Rasputin. This is literally, literally, yeah, yeah. Literally, it's not, so, not a good look. Despite this, she does offer Dee a considerable amount of royal patronage. Um, gives him a lot of stuff to do and a lot of gifts and money and whatnot. 
quite apart from his uh, skill in navigation, which was sort of the practical thing he could offer, because as somebody who was very learned with maps and stars and whatnot, he had a very useful skill for naval purposes. Um, the queen also believed that he had magical powers and consulted him on a regular basis about all sorts of things. In fact, the actual date of Elizabeth's coronation was chosen based on John Dee's astrological readings of what a favorable date would be. Oh, well, there you go. Um, th mm. this, uh, I believe John Dee also wrote to her in these, uh, in these, uh, consultation, these sorcerer consultations, his, uh, signature was 007. Yes, maybe. It might be two eyes and a seven. No one really knows what the symbol means, and no one is sure if they based James Bond 007 on this or not, but he did have this weird symbol he signed with, which was two eyes and a seven. Yep. <laughs> I just wanted to yep. point that out. And um, D was also introduced by the Queen to Francis Walsingham, who was the head of her spy service. Oh, so there you go. <laughs> some people think D like, did a lot of espionage kind of thing while he's traveling around on the continent buying books. Other people think he didn't. There's no real, there's not, there's not strong evidence either way, as far as I saw, about whether he was doing like secret missions or not. He I'm convinced. Been. I'm convinced he was remote viewing the dark side of the moon. But you know, hey, that's my. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, just, just kidding. <laughs> so shortly, uh, shortly after the rise of Elizabeth, D also publicly professed himself a Protestant, which he had never done before. Though presumably it didn't come as a surprise, since you know he was big into the Dutch thing and everything and been with Northumberland, but he makes it official that he's a Protestant. And for the next few decades, Dee remained in a highly favored position, advising the Queen on a variety of issues. Uh, he also puts a curse on the Spanish Armada, and the Spanish Armada gets sunk, so it obviously worked. Um, <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> but his big thing that he advises on is England's voyages of discovery in the New World, since his expertise with, you know, stars and maps meant that he was very well equipped to apply himself to the principles of navigation. He encouraged the queen to devote energy and resources to the overseas expansion of power, and he wrote and lectured on this topic a lot, trying to sort of gather public enthusiasm for this expansion thing. Hmm. But despite the great success Dee was having by doing what would be considered fairly normal stuff, you know, calculating navigational charts and whatnot, his own interest and in activities continued to veer further and further into the more, shall we say, obscure parts of his learning. Mm. Um, in 1564, he writes a hermetic work called Monas Hieroglyphica, which is an exhaustive sort of Kabbalistic interpretation of this glyph symbol, which he himself had made up, which was supposed to express the mystical unity of all creation. And he writes a whole book about this symbol that he invented. Whoa. It's getting pretty weird. And then yeah. he dedicates the book to Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, in an effort to gain patronage from him. And Dee attempts to sort of present the book to him, but Maximilian was less than enthused. It was just sort of like a, hey, thanks, bye response. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I, I guess is probably pretty fair when some crazy man dedicates a whole book about a symbol he made up to you. I don't really know what the social etiquette is for responding to that. <laughs> Nonetheless, like he did really also weird, really weird fan art. <laughs> yeah. He did also pursue pursue his more uh, normal academic pursuits. Uh, his 1570 mathematical preface to an English translation of Euclid's Elements 
argued persuasively for the importance of mathematics as an influence on the other arts and sciences, and this actually ended up proving to be his most enduring work, because it actually was reprinted a lot and, like, used academically and was, like, a really well-received thing and wasn't crazy ramblings. Uh, so that, that, he was still capable of doing normal stuff. Um, on the other hand, in 1574, he wrote to Lord Cecil, one of Elizabeth's most prominent noble advisors, and told him that he had used occult means to determine that there were secret treasures hidden in the Welsh marches, and that if he provided political and financial support for Dee, he would use his occult powers to find the treasures for Lord Cecil. Uh, this doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. Ah, uh, damn. Lord I Cecil was, did not take him up on this. I was hoping for a 1574 Indiana Jones there. I mean, I think that's what uh, D was hoping for, too. But oh. So in uh, 1577, he published a book called The General and Rare Memorials Pertaining to the Perfect Art of Navigation, which sets out his vision of England as a maritime empire and asserts English territorial claims on the New World. In fact, it was in this work that John Dee became the first person we know of to use the term the British Empire. Oh, no. Dee, yep. no! I know. It kind of makes sense, though, if you think about what we talked about in the beginning. Dee is not English, remember, but Welsh. Uh, the Welsh are the remains of an ancient people known as the Britons, who used to inhabit much more of England, but were pushed into a little corner by the, uh, the Angles and the Saxons, who became the English. So you can see that he might not want to be a poster child for the English Empire. So instead, he starts encouraging the use of British as sort of an inclusive term for the different ethnic groups in the island, even though it ultimately means the Welsh, his people. And the crazy thing is, it actually worked. And the whole empire for 500 years ends up being called the British Empire. Wow. <laughs> I really like how he kind of keeps switching back and forth between like normal stuff, like normal scholarship and off the wall schizo stuff. Yeah, like I really like it too. The versatility is nice. Uh, he also gets married around this time to a lady in waiting from a nobleman's court. Technically, this is actually his third wife, but we know basically nothing about the other two. We know one of their names and that's it. Neither had any children and both died before too long. So, like, we don't really know a whole lot about his personal life in that way. Hmm. But he gets married again at this point to his third wife. Um, by the early 18, 1580s, <laughs> D was getting very discouraged that he hadn't made some sort of breakthrough in his attempt to truly learn the secrets of nature and reality. And at the same time, his influence at court also seemed to be on the decline. Uh -oh. And honestly probably for good reason. Um, he was getting kind of weird. Little too many schizo posts. Yeah. With the, uh, around this time, the Pope in Rome was issuing his fancy, new, very accurate Gregorian calendar. Mm. And if you're Protestant England, you need an alternative because, like, the Pope's calendar is just patently better. But it's the Pope's calendar. So you don't want to use that. You need an alternative for Protestant England. And John Dee was ready to provide one. Oh boy. He proposed one that was based on a 33-year cycle, the number of years in Jesus' life, that has seven four-year periods in which the fourth year is a leap year, followed by a five-year period in which the fourth year is a leap year. Uh. 
He also calculated that this calendar would ensure that the vernal equinox always fell on March 21st, provided it was used at the correct longitude, which he called God's longitude. Oh, weird. Weird. The snag here was that Dee's calculations placed God's longitude somewhere on the east coast of America in places that were already being colonized by Spanish Catholics. Um, so Dee advised the queen that an expedition should be set out to North America to take possession of at least some of the land through which, God, through which God's longitude ran. And it has been suggested that the, uh, the scientific mission to Roanoke Island was, one of its goals was to take measurements to try to establish the exact position of God's longitude. This is weird. This is weird. But I of like course, it. Roanoke disappeared. Literally, no one took Dee's calendar seriously. And about a hundred years later, England finally started using the Pope's calendar. But they still didn't admit to it. They like literally just like took all the Pope's calculations and were like, hey guys, look, we calculated a better calendar. It's a coincidence that it's just like the one the Pope made a hundred years ago. <laughs> Classic. Yep. It's kind of sad, though, that we didn't get the 33-year calendar cycle. I know. 33 is a magic number. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. So more and more, Dee is turning very energetically towards the supernatural as a means to acquire knowledge, since he's kind of just burnt out on, like, normal scholarship. And he begins to try to contact spirits through the use of a scryer or crystal gazer, uh who would act as an intermediary between himself and the angels. Oh, like looking into a crystal ball and he's pondering with the angels, he's pondering his orb. L literally. Yes. Um, wow. However, his initial attempts were unsatisfactory. Apparently the first guy he hired just didn't work out. But in 1582, he meets a guy named Edward Kelly, who was then calling himself Edward Talbot to disguise his conviction for forgery. Ah, so not a con man. Definitely not a con man. Absolutely impossible. And somehow Edward Kelly impressed him greatly with his abilities to do the crystal gazing. And so Dee takes Kelly into his service and begins to devote all his energies to these supernatural pursuits. These uh, spiritual conferences where they communicate with the angels are sort of weird Protestant magic sessions. They have like a period of purification and prayer and fasting before they ponder the orb. And uh -huh. D is just convinced that he's going to unlock secrets of nature that would benefit mankind. Um, and so they just keep doing this. And Kelly's uh, level of output of this angelic communication is remarkable. Uh, D records in his journal that the angels dictated several whole books to him this way through Kelly, some in a special angelic language called Enochian. Um, D's journals also refer to the language as celestial speech, First language of the God Christ, holy language, language of the angels. Uh, he also refers to it as Adamical because according to Dee's angels, it was used by Adam in paradise to name things. Uh, the term Enochian comes from Dee's assertion that the biblical patriarch Enoch was the last man before Dee and Kelly, obviously, to know the language. This is And I so just gave weird. you a picture of some Enochian there to look at. So this is what angels use, huh? Apparently, yeah. Yeah, as uh, seen by this con man. Yes. Okay. Yes. So in 1583, D meets a Polish nobleman named Albert Waski, 
who invites Dee to accompany him back to Poland. Um, and with the approval of the angels, you know, kindly granted through Kelly, and probably in light of the fact that no one in England took him seriously anymore, he decided, yeah, to hell with it, let's go to Poland. Um, so he, Kelly, and their families leave in September of 1583. But when they get there, they find out that Waski was broke and had no friends or patrons in his own country. So D is there, left high, dry, and in Poland. Oh. And he and Kelly then just sort of begin a nomadic life in Central Europe, continuing to do these spiritual conferences and transcribe these angelic books. And they get audiences with various rulers and nobles, including Emperor Rudolf and King Stephen of Poland, whom they attempt to convince of the importance of this angelic communication and why they should, you know, like, the kings should sort of set them up in some sort of a, you know, official capacity as, like, angel communicators and give them a house or something because they're <laughs> homelessly wandering around Central Europe. They're living the Joseph Smith lifestyle right now. Yep. So while Dee was uh, generally respected for his broad learning, because remember, he'd been a pretty famous scholar, he was mistrusted for his connection with Elizabeth, the English queen, um, for whom some thought, and we talked about this, that Dee was a spy. And then he was also kind of mistrusted because of this crazy shit he was saying. Uh, the Polish king, who was, of course, a devout Catholic, began their meeting by saying that unless Dee's revelations lined up with the teachings of Christ, the Catholic Church, and the Pope, he wasn't interested in hearing it. Well, there you go. Um, in 1587, at a spiritual conference in Bohemia, Kelly told Dee that the angels had ordered the men to share all their possessions, including their wives. Uh, again with this. <laughs> it always comes back to this, doesn't it? The uh, the order for wife sharing caused Dee a lot of uh, mental anguish, but he did not doubt that it was genuine and from the angels, and so who was he to question it? So they apparently shared wives. Um, however, Dee sort of breaks off the conferences pretty soon after this, so like I think he, I think he just couldn't couldn't do it anymore. Um, mm -hmm. But by this time, Kelly had gained some renown as an alchemist and was actually more sought after than D, since alchemy, if you could make it work, that was the line of work that had prospects for serious and long-term financial gains. Like, if you can uh, turn, you know, other things to gold, that could be a big deal. And so royal families in Europe sponsor alchemical work, trying to figure out if there's a way to do this. And Kelly's gotten a reputation as a promising alchemist. Hmm. D, however, wasn't interested in that. He was more interested in communicating with the angels, who he believed would help him solve the mysteries of heaven through mathematics, astrology, optics, and all that. So Kelly goes on to become the alchemist to Emperor Rudolf II, while D returns to England in 1589. Coincidentally enough, nine months later in 1588, um, or 1589, a son was born to D's wife, whom D baptized as Theodorus Trebonianus D., and raised as his own son, but there's certainly a level of question about that. Fact. Yeah, whether it was Kelly's or his. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And having been gone for basically six years, uh, when Dee returns to his uh, formerly very nice home, he finds that apparently just leaving your house unattended for six years is a really bad idea. It had been broken into, vandalized, many of his books and scientific instruments were stolen, and the vandalism, plus the sort of general disrepair, meant that a large part of what remained of his library had been almost completely destroyed by exposure to weather. Because, wow. like, this house is literally just sitting there for six years. I'm just imagining, like, a giant mansion from Dark Souls again. 
<laughs> you know, one with the candle head people in it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. In addition, he also found upon his return that people were generally even less okay with the weird sorcery as science sort of stuff he'd been doing than they were before. And no one was really happy to see him back. Um, mm. He asked Elizabeth for help. Well, technically, he asked Elizabeth to try to use her influence to get Kelly to come back so that Dee could continue to talk to the angels. Hmm. This is getting sad, isn't it? I don't think he's talking to angels, just saying. Yeah. Um, he also suggested to Elizabeth that Kelly could probably use alchemy to manufacture gold for Elizabeth's treasury while he was there. Elizabeth was unenthused and did not try to get Kelly to come back. Good call. <laughs> so after several years of Dee being destitute and crazy, Elizabeth felt bad and appointed him to be the warden of the clergy of Christ College in Manchester. However, no one there liked Dee or took him seriously at all, and he was generally sort of scorned, mocked, and ignored. Uh, and it didn't help that he also didn't involve himself with the job at all, either. He generally just spent his time trying to regain contact with the angels. And finally, after 10 years of this, um, after his wife uh, dies, he leaves the college in 1605, even though he technically remains the warden of it, and returns to the ruins of his home where he lives in poverty for three more years, selling off possessions to support himself and his surviving daughter who was taking care of him, before finally dying in 1608 in destitution and obscurity. Wow. <laughs> Uh, I guess that's what you get for being a wizard. Uh, yeah. Um, what's your take on all this? I mean, it's kind of crazy that he just sort of this arc where he's this like phenomenally famous and popular scholar who's, you know, doing these amazing things with math and navigation and map making. And like everyone, you know, everyone respects his work and he just sort of cycles out of control and just becomes obsessed with communicating with the angels and literally ends up sort of throwing everything away. Yeah, and like any old wizard, this obsession with secret knowledge, uh, it has a give and take. I mean, for sure, like, today today with the internet, you can learn anything, and you can, you can learn about this stuff, and it can become very scary very quickly, because when you start seeing the connections and you start you know, expanding your knowledge base, eventually you're like, oh, well, what's what's this stuff over here that's not allowed? And there's a reason it's in, you know, the forbidden books section in the Hogwarts library. It's because it's generally dangerous. Um, you got to be real careful when you're like, not to say, not to pretend like this wasn't just a scam or anything, but I have a sense that John D was the type of high IQ guy who could, you know, see numbers everywhere. Um, and you've, you've also got to keep in mind the stuff we said earlier about how, like, the the line between science and magic is very hard to place at this point in time because there's all sorts of developments happening, you know, technology, knowledge, and all that, that are making things that seem crazy real, and a lot of it looks like magic. So it's like, like think about optics, which are really coming into their own. You're telling me if we just put this glass in a certain shape we can use it to see far away. Yeah. That sounds like magic. It sounds yeah. like some sort of magic crystal ball, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, and so like the lines between science and magic basically don't exist at this time. So it's easy to see how someone who's really, really sort of single-mindedly pursuing it can cross over that line without from sort of his perspective ever having changed anything. 
Yeah. And so like for him, like making these navigate these charts of the stars and astronomy and trying to talk to angels are both sort of part of the same pursuit. It just reminds me of that uh, Arthur C. Clarke quote, which I'm going to butcher, but basic idea is any technology that's sufficiently advanced, beca advanced becomes indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm, exactly. I think it, I think it's the other way around too. Um, because like magic and science, they sort of split apart at a certain point, but I see them reconverging again. Um, there's all kinds of weird scientific advancements now that are, I mean, from a, from a medieval point of view or from a point of view from the outside, it looks like what you're trying to do is summon something from another dimension to aid you in this one. And it, you know, they dress it up in all this fancy language, like particle accelerators and stuff like that. But the large Hadron Collider, they're trying, I mean, like, I don't know what exactly what they're trying to do out there, but the stuff they say they're trying to do out there is like, dude, you're going to bring heaven down on our heads. Like, this is not a good idea. Um, and at the same time, you know, um, it's just so interesting to watch it, to watch this happen in this story where he eventually, the technology, he outruns the technology and ends up communing with something, whether in his mind or whether, you know, it was legit. It's something that generally gave him very bad advice, like sharing your wives. Uh, that's one that happens with almost every cult. Uh, and I think it's because lured in by this promise of secret knowledge, you also allow in some very, very bad ideas as well. Um, just look at what happened with the Protestants in, uh, in uh, Munster, right? They went crazy and eventually the whole revolt had to be put down. And what happened at the end, they were sharing wives and everybody was just going completely wild. And they were allegedly ah, yes, the, new the new Jerusalem so many times. Um, On the other hand, a beautiful moment of ecumenism between Catholics and Lutherans. <laughs> uh, wait, what are you referring to? Well, it was, it was a joint Catholic and Lutheran expedition that finally uh, toppled the insane people ruling Munzner. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When the ones who established, yeah, the, uh, the kingdom, the, uh, the new Jerusalem in Munster and like the king had like 12 wives and like someone actually was killed for refusing to be one of his wives. And they had this weird, yeah, millennial sort of millenarian thing going on. Eventually, yeah, the Catholics and the Lutherans in the area stopped fighting and were like, we need to deal with these people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's all very, very interesting, but we're out of time, so I think we'd ha better head up to the surface. All right, sounds good. Okay, and so we can we can record an ending segment later. I know you have to go. No, no, um, we can we can do this right now. We, we haven't written it though. So, Aaron, if you had to summon a demon slash angel slash whatever kind of entity we're talking about from the ether, would you use science or magic? Uh, probably, probably, uh, personally, probably magic, but I think science might actually get the job done a little better. <laughs> It'd probably be more efficient, honestly. I think the difference here is you're either going to get, like, an oblivion gate if you use magic, um, a dark soul situation if you use magic, but if you use science, you're going to get Half-Life 2. And I, pr I think I prefer, uh, Half-Life. <laughs> they have guns in that game. <laughs> And what about you? If you had to summon a demon from the ether, would you use science or magic? Well, 
I haven't played Half-Life, so I mean, just based on your description alone, as a as a diehard FromSoft fan, I'd have to go with uh, with Magic because I I want to live out Dark Souls. And you'd probably end up being one of those candle-headed undead in the, the Absolutely library. Absolutely not. I would be like my idol, Black Iron Tarkus. Okay, fair enough. And not and like die the... by falling off the rafters. <laughs> uh, no, you wouldn't be the Onion guy. Oh, the oh, that's true. Sigward. Mm. These are moral quandaries. I know, I know. Well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for this eon. If you hate us, you're probably right, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. All kinds of bonuses are there for you to enjoy. If Patreon is not your thing, it always helps to drop a little tip in Venmo. Our handle is at WTADP. We've been getting a couple of those, which has been very, very nice. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration, and we've hired, again, uh, hired him again, and I just reached out to make sure... We're still getting some work done on our cover. I'm assuming I'll hear back from him sometime soon, so look forward to that. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of proto-Harry Potter wizardry play you out. When you rush around in hopeless circles Searching everywhere for something true You're at the age of not believing When all the make-believe is through When you set aside your childhood heroes And your dreams are lost upon a shelf You're at the age of not believing And worst of all you doubt yourself you're a castaway where no one hears you on a barren isle in a lonely sea where did all the happy endings go where can all the good times be you must face the age of not believing doubting everything you ever knew until at last you start believing there's something wonderful in you.
You must face the age of not believing, doubting everything you ever knew. Until at last you start believing there's something wonderful.